this is my last Bayheim question, I promise for you. Yeah, Patrick. great. Um, We got a goofy intro, Pat, so bear with us. Uh, we're going to just blow a whistle. It's nothing you haven't uh, heard before, being the head manager at uh, Syracuse Men's Basketball <laughs> Program. So hopefully it doesn't bring back any PTSD for you. But are you ready? Ready. Let's do it. <laughs> timeout. Tyler, who are we taking a timeout with today? Kevin, good to see you, brother. And today, ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, we have Patrick Luckett the president and co-founder of At A Best Day Ever. Hey, Patrick, thanks for joining the show, man. I think this is episode, we're getting up in the 90s now. Maybe like, not, let's just say 94 was a great year. As you can see my, my, my shirt in the background and my hogs wanted all back in the day. But you guys weren't too shabby either with the Wallaces and whatnot, uh, Patrick. But we're, we're starting out, man. First question is, can you just give us your best Jim Beheim story out of the gate here? Oh man, that, you know, you said you were going to toss me softballs and this is, uh, this is, there's so many, there are so many. Listen, I, I, I was the head manager for, uh, for Bayheim 2008 to 2012, the last two years traveling with the team, handling a lot of different, you know, logistical operation stuff around practice. Um, it was an honor to be part of his inner circle then. It happened to be the time that, uh, you know, the whole allegations against Bernie Fine came up as well, right after the Joe Pa thing at Penn State. And my favorite story isn't one single antidote. It's how he handled that season, right? And I know this is called Time Out with Leaders. That in and of itself was a case study. Obviously, he was in the news quite a bit, talking out with the media, you know, defending his long-term associate head coach. But what he was doing internally on a day-in and day-out basis, that silent confidence. I mean, that year we started 20-0, and 0, right? We were the number one team yeah. in the country. Um, I maintained if we didn't have one of our, our players ruled ineligible uh, right before the NCAA tournament, we would have been playing Kentucky for the national championship that year. So, um, you know, it was adversity that brought us through and, and a Hall of Fame coach. So I'll, I'll take that entire season and dealing with adversity is my favorite Jim Beheim moment. Wow, that's special. All right, well, I'm going to ask you, uh, we got a, we got a five on five basketball tournament and uh, you happen to be the captain. What other what other four players are you adding to your team? All time or Cuse or can we narrow the parameters well, a little? Let's, let's go. Let's go all time. You don't have to stay just in Syracuse. Okay. Well, I got to go mellow, right? First pick as a yep. Cuse guy, all time NBA player, future Hall of Famer. Um, he'll he'll play the three, maybe stretch four. I know a little more new age stretch four. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think from a point guard perspective, it's hard to go against Steph and the way he's revolutionized the game. Um, Jordan, I grew up watching, so he'll slide in nicely at the two. Uh, Tim Duncan, Mr. Fundamental. Ooh, yeah. or, and I'd be hard-pressed to pick a better center than than Shaq Diesel. So, well, I, I think that's uh, good luck stopping us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, and I wanted to ask you, so you were there 08 to 12. Yeah. Um, how was cutting film back in the day? I used to do that for the Hogs back in the day. That you know, Coach Heath would be like, "I need misstates, inbounds, plays, uh, blah blah blah." Dude, it took us forever, man. Did you guys spend countless hours? And was it was yeah. it like that? The technology really didn't hit then. I I remember. Yeah, yeah, it was still pretty antiquated. And shout out Todd Blumen, who was the video director for a long, long time with Bayheim. 
and he kept everything to pretty tight to the vest. It had a system, very organized. We had exposure to it. It was largely just categorizing different plays and making sure that it was indexed properly. Um, but from what I understand how they do it now, it's, you know, you could do it in two seconds on your iPhone. It's completely different. Yeah, man. And, and, dude, yeah, exactly. And I wanted to ask you, so, so consistency and, and um, resilient is what you're talking about, Bayheim. This is my last Bayheim question, I promise for you. Yeah, Patrick. great. Um, so what did you see on his day-to-day that kept him so consistent for so many years? Was there any best practices that you picked up from, from Bayheim day-to-day to be, I mean, to be that at that level? Yeah. I, I don't know if, if people understand behind the curtain what that looks like and how much yeah. pressure is put on you when you're in that seat. But any best practices that you, that you learn from Bayheim from the day-to-day perspective? Yeah, I think, I mean, you, you said the word a few times, consistent, right? Our practices followed a very similar template week in and week out. We knew what we were doing with skill positions. We knew what we were doing with teamwork. We knew what we were doing with prep for the future, you know, the next game. The strength and conditioning coach had his time in place. The, you know, the physical trainer and the wellness staff had their time before and after practice. Um, and it wasn't that they were compartmentalized, that they weren't assisting one another. They were really deeply integrated but we knew the schedule really going ahead, you know, weeks out, what, what this all was going to look like. Um, I think Bayheim's singular greatest trait though, just again, my one man's opinion. Uh, he knew what buttons to push for which player at the right time. And some players, you know, some would call this playing favorites. Right? I think it's finding the right way to optimize the talent that you have. And he had staff that also knew really how to do it. Mike Hopkins was a longtime assistant coach. And I've seen him literally pick fights with players at 6 a.m. because they weren't bringing the heat at a 6 a.m. workout. But they get mad, they get riled up, and by the end of it, they're hugging because it's one of the all-time best workout tactics, right? And so knowing which players you can do that to, which ones are going to respond well, Bayheim embodied that. And uh, and it was fun to watch, especially, you know, as a 70-year-old man picking on 18-year-olds, it was pretty outmatched. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's years and years of wisdom to, for him to pull that together. That's fascinating. And and kind of, Pat, you, you saw firsthand, and I'm going to switch gears and kind of start talking about probably some of those lessons that you learned, not only through sports, but also through your experiences. But to that point, Jim Beheim, 70, is bringing in kids that are 17 and 18 years old. Yeah. How did he communicate effectively across those generations, right? Because then we think about it in business, and it, it's viewed as almost impossible by some in leadership that are baby boomers. Yeah. I can't relate to Gen Z, but here you are. You have to be able to relate to the millennials and some of these younger generations in order to be successful um, as a coach in today's game. Yeah. What, what? How did he communicate and what types of things could others learn from his communications strategies or abilities to still be able to relate and speak to that individual despite their difference in the differences in age? Yeah, he, he did a great job of playing, you know, kind of kingmaker and and king of the program and that had its place he wasn't going to um develop a personal relationship with his recruits that wasn't already established by the the people that he delegated you know to do the recruiting assistant coaches um and so he kind of came in and let the record speak for itself and hired and delegated to his staff you know the uh the responsibility of going in and making sure that you know they felt like they had a home with the program once they got to that level and there was a shared interest, then he comes in and it's like, you're one of our guys. You're part of that inner circle. Bayheim's inner circle is, is pretty small. Uh, and so as a player, as part of the program, you get access to that. 
that you know it makes you feel warm and gushy it's it's all the things you want when you're part of um part of Syracuse basketball but he communicated effectively by not communicating you know when not necessary and let the program and his records and accolades kind of speak for itself that's fascinating to almost but you delegation is the, the greatest form of empowerment encouragement and yeah. enablement, in my opinion how did he like what was the overarching message like intention is that how he got all the coaches and all the uh training staff on the same page because you talked about not really seeing the silos, right? There are these different buckets. It is physical. It is wellness. It is situations. It is prep for the next game. How did he keep the silos down? Because I think that's a lot of lessons that a lot of organizations are now trying to learn is how do we create this collaboration of sorts? Um, So everybody's working together. Yes, their challenges are different, but they're seemingly working together to solve those challenges that they're all experiencing. How was he able to do that effectively? Well, you know, it starts by picking the right guys from the start, right? And if you're coming to Syracuse, you're com- you're coming because you think you're going to play pro ball one day and you want to compete for a national championship while you're in the college landscape, right? Um, last few years have fallen a little bit short of that, admittedly, but, you know, trying to move back towards that. And that's always been Beheim's mantra and the program's mantra at large. Um, there's a lot of communication that happens, right? From the staff perspective, there's daily ins and outs of who's coming to get treatment, who's really bringing it in the weight room, who's taking strength and condition seriously, who's reading uh, you know, the scouting report and watching film. Um, but Beheim's program was more similar to a pro program than probably 98% of colleges. And there's a lot of autonomy. Even though you're 18, 19 years old, if you're falling short of expectations, it shows. Basketball is incredibly you know, objective. You're either putting up numbers and, and helping to win games or you're not. And uh, if you're if you're not, then, you know, that's when issues start to take place and maybe Bayheim learns how to push more buttons and figure out how to get you back to par and, and kind of overachieving. But again, if you're doing it, you're doing it to yourself because you're falling short of your own ambitions when you chose to come to Syracuse. So a lot of communication happens behind the scenes, again, with the players. It's it's really purposeful. It's really deliberate uh, and intentional at, at the right time, at the right place to try and lift them back or let them know that they're they are falling short and it's, it's time to step it up. But it seems like Bayheim was in tune enough to individually determine what that individual's definition or personal definition of success is. So yeah. that he could, could, could hold them accountable when they were falling short of that dream or that vision that they had for themselves, instead of saying you're not doing enough. Right. And I think that's kind mm-hmm. of where a lot of people just get tripped up from a performance perspective is yeah. lack of clarity, lack of understanding, but then, sheer lack of, to your point, it becomes subjective in a lot of organizations instead of that objective nature, you're putting up points, rebounds, assists. Um, yep. But but how do, how do those KPIs lead to ultimately winning the game? And right. what I find fascinating is it, it's really hard for a head coach because you think of leadership CEOs, you being one of them at uh, best day ever, right? It's a lot of pressure on yourself to perform. So then you keep the jobs for everybody else on your team. Yeah. Same thing. I would envision some of these head coaches being ultimately control freaks, really controlling the communication between those recruits and their family members, as well as their 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 staff. How do you think Bayheim built that level of trust? Because it seems like he trusted his team enough to represent him and the program in a way that you guys had a shared expectation almost. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Longest tenured coach at one institution of all time. Never uh, broke out of the two-three zone either. So, like, no. I, I don't know if you guys ever tried to convince him to break it, but he never he, did. He, 
he he's a little bit superstitious. He tried it a couple times. He tried it ironically 2009-2010 season in an exhibition game against fellow in-state school then D2 Lemoyne uh, and we lost. We lost an exhibition game to Lemoyne. And then we went on a run as, you know, the number one team in the country with Andy Routens and Wesley Johnson and just, you know, stacked roster. Um, but we didn't play man to man that entire season because we had that lost the next game. Game. Right. School. That'll do it. Uh, you know, it, that'll do it. Absolutely. And so listen, when you play, when you do something as well as he did, and and that two, three zone was really kind of a hybrid from, you know, the traditional two, three zone, it was a heavy matchup zone. You overloaded on shooters and, um, and college basketball is different. It's harder to play the two, three zone now because kids are coming out of high school and there's, you know, they're as pure shooters as they've ever been. So, um, you know, I think uh, back to your original question, he built this trust over 46 years as head coach. I think it was 46, more than 45, right? And he was with the program even longer. If you look at our coaching staff, say our, because, you know, I'm still part of the program at heart, um, it's it's all players that played at Syracuse, right? And Jerry McNamara, Alan Griffin, and new coach, Red Autry. Um, Brandon Strong's the new one that came in. He was not a Syracuse guy, but he has ties to the DMV and he has ties to um, Coach Autry. And so, you know, now that he's taken over the program, he's bringing in. But Beheim, there's a demonstrated history and working relationship with the folks that he works with. That's how he can delegate. They've proven themselves in his eyes and he trusts them, you know, vehemently. So. And I was going to ask you, Pat, who, who, was, who was Pat Luckett before Syracuse and before NYU? Can you kind of give us a buildup to, to who you were before you know, any of these accolades or any, any, I guess what we call it, real, real stuff happened to you. High, high school, Pat. Um, yeah. High school, Pat, man. From Syracuse. Right. And so it was a dream to go to Syracuse and work with the basketball team. I mean, ultimately as a, as a hoops player myself, I couldn't have fathomed that reality uh, and was obviously super stoked when it did come true. Listen, I, I was your, you know, average jock that played some golf played lacrosse played basketball uh pretty decent student but not top in the class um you know i like to brag because we had like 812 some students in my high school and my class rank was 69th which is always fun to tell people at a bar um and so you know i got got into syracuse my pops worked at syracuse so i got the tuition benefit and that the job with the uh, basketball team i had done some interning in high school for the athletic department and that led to the role um, everything kind of just started to fall in place. And, you know, I didn't quite realize why I'm sure that it was a lot of the opportunity that was presented to me just through family relationships, through, um, you know, working my butt off through, uh, I would, be, I would leave school when I didn't have practice and go right to the athletic department and start rolling posters. Right. And, and it was for the orange club, the fundraising arm. And through that grew a relationship with Bernie Fine and the coaching staff. And that led to, hey, why don't you come to my office the day you show up at school and we'll uh, we'll get you a role as a manager. Um, and I was still dumb and thought that I had a chance to actually walk on and try it and uh, ultimately fell a little short. But through the perseverance and that kind of athlete mentality, which I know you've had previous guests on the podcast talk about bringing that kind of first in, last out attitude. And, you know, it's not always necessary for every job, but I think for young professionals trying to figure out what they do, demonstrating a work ethic gives you the best chance to learn more about yourself, right? And more about the role. And obviously, even if it's not something you want to do, it, it gives you that opportunity to show out well and make sure you have a good recommendation when that time comes for you to figure out a new path. 
this is something I love doing, right? I love being around the basketball program. I love the 6 a.m. workouts. I'm from Syracuse, so the opportunity to, you know, ascend the ranks, become head manager happened quicker than it does for most because I was here over winter breaks. I was here over Thanksgiving breaks. I was over summer breaks, you name it, living on campus and helping out in any way, shape, or form. Um, now, that being said, everybody that was a manager wanted to be a coach. I mean, at least 90% of them, right? That was that was kind of that road, um, that pathway. And I didn't. I always thought the business of sport was interesting. I didn't want to um, be X's and O's on court. I thought it was really more interesting how sports could be a vehicle for larger, you know, commercial and um, and community gain, right? I thought that there was such a cool vehicle for, uh, you know, communities to rally around is this idea in sports called Berg or Berging, Basking in Reflected Glory. And so, you know, I, that that opportunity to just steal that equity is uh, really, really enticed me. Um, and all that being said, as soon as I graduated, I took the first job that would get me down to New York City and had nothing to do with sports. Uh, but it was, you know, really eye-opening. Coach Beheim actually wrote my first letter of recommendation. So shout out, Coach Beheim. Appreciate it. Um, <laughs> And I took the first job I could, though, and it was at this ad tech startup. It was, you know, programmatic buying for contextual advertising on the Internet. Uh, you can think of, you know, when you search on Google and the first three or four results come back as an ad. That's what this company did. And they did it on, through a larger network of publishers. Um, really eye opening for me. Right. I was inserted into a sales role. I had to learn how to be told no over and over and how to prospect and how to build relationships. Um, it certainly taught me a lot of things that helped me, you know, run my business today. Uh, and all the time I was completely miserable, but back to that first in last out, give it all you got. I was able to learn like a, a ton about it and different sales operational workflows and, um, you know, how to prospect in different markets, what, what our value prop was, how to articulate that in different ways. And ultimately, the company was great. I was able to switch into a marketing role in the same mindset, right? Like, let's let's throw everything we got into this. Let's figure out in this largely B2B market, how do we position ourselves in online advertising different from Google, right? Who has such a, a giant market share. Um, still didn't scratch the sports void though, right? And so that's when I went back to NYU and I got my master's in sports business. And that ultimately led to a role where I was running uh, operations for a boutique consulting firm. That consulting firm is called Novo Consulting, still exists today. They did two things exclusive for one client. Client was NRG Energy, big utility energy company, largest integrated power company in the country. Uh, and at the time, they were really embracing non-commodity power, so solar panels, wind farms, you know, non-brown power. Uh, we were in charge of managing all of their lead generation efforts. So any sort of um, municipality, hospital, uh, hospital, Fortune 1000, um, you know, universities, companies and organizations that had complex energy situations uh, it would be around for 20 years and could sign a power purchase agreement. We were in charge with top of funnel, uh, you know, lead gen for that. The other thing we did, which is why I took the role, is we also managed their, their corporate hospitality. And NRG, if you're familiar, has the naming rights for the Houston Texans. They also are the exclusive energy provider of the Dallas Cowboys, the San Francisco 49ers, the Philadelphia Eagles, the Miami Heat, Houston Astros, Houston Rockets. <laughs> At the time, it was the Patriots, the Jets, the Giants. And so we had some 20,000 tickets that we were in charge of running. And we realized if you 
kind of combine that business development methodology that we had from lead gen work and the hospitality program and put them together. Uh, that's the niche that we were able to exploit. We had tremendous results, both from pipeline, you know, uh, conversions and from utilization of the hospitality. And so that's shortly after we, we shed our exclusivity to NRG, me and my business partner spun off best day ever. And now I'm talking to you, gents. <laughs> Which is exciting, right? Um, but I love how you said I was completely miserable. Um, right. And I think, I think a lot of, but all kidding aside, right. How many people actually truly love the job that they're currently in, but you had this defined, um, destination for yourself, Pat, which I feel like really helped you to continue to take any and all opportunities that were presented to you to help you get to that destination and ultimately where you're at now. I mean, even just the NRG working for a consulting firm because that was their client, knowing that that was your best avenue or potential avenue to get into the industry that you always wanted. Me yeah. being in healthcare, right? I, I can't get into healthcare, um, unfortunately. They won't let you touch patients without a, uh, a, a certification or. Uh, I don't know. That's unfortunate. Test, but, okay. right? <laughs> how, how early do you think you define that final destination for yourself? Like go back to the Syracuse, maybe that first year. When did you determine, right? How did, when did you craft that definition or vision board for yourself as to what that career or opportunity looked like for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, in high school, right. My, my father and I, who's my all time mentor, uh, he put together in, you know, we sat, I remember putting our college applications together and thinking about what our, what a resume looks like, what the cover letter should look like, what your admission essay should look like. And why are we writing it that way? Right. Like what's the end goal for this? And, you know, I was 17. I was like, I don't, I don't really know what I want to do. I like sports. I like business. Like, let's figure out what that looks like. Um, the Falk School at Syracuse, the, the sports business school was was up and running, but it wasn't all that established. And the Whitman School was pretty, pretty notable and um, had produced a lot of alumni. So we went general business, marketing, strategic management. We still have that vision board, right? We still have that like step. I remember it's like, get a job here, step into this role, step into this role. And at the time it morphed into let's become an athletic director. I had loved college sports so much. Um, and I thought that was the best fit to you know run an organization that uh, has a lot of not-for-profit entities and, and you know initiatives. There's a, a community aspect to it, but there's also kind of corporate sponsorship and large large revenue. It's the big leagues, right? If you're doing it at a D1 level in one of the FBS schools. And then, you know, I, like I said, I moved to New York and fell in love with New York City. And so there's a lot of other opportunities. Going to grad school, uh, you know, opened my eyes to what other opportunities were out there, right? You can work property side, you can work college athletic side, um, those would require you to jump and move and, you know, work a lot of different roles and a lot of different departments and opportunities for vertical growth are far and few between. You can go agency route, which ultimately is what I did and took kind of a, a you know, a zigzag way of getting there by starting my own. But, you know, um, it's kind of similar. You're going to be working for a number of clients. Um, it's you see a lot of attrition in those first few entry points, uh, entry jobs. Um, and then ultimately what a lot of people like to do is work on the brand side in running corporate sponsorship and marketing programs. Um, it, you have to have some chops to get there. Uh, I took a job that I knew and, and 
And I preach this to my staff all the time, like what's the challenge and what's the reward, right? What's what ultimately you're going to be asked to do every single day. And are you going to feel compensated, not just monetarily, but you know, are you, is it going to satiate your thirst for knowledge? Are you going to, are you going to feel curious? Are you going to feel when you rest your head at night that you accomplished a hard day's work or did you feel like you were pushing paper? Um, and so we, we focus on that a lot and every opportunity I've taken, I've asked myself that question. And again, that's kind of where we, how we got to where we are. Yeah. Pat, I was going to ask you about delegating. Um, I, I don't see anybody out working Pat Luckett, man. Like, you know, those six to six days, you know, at, at Houston and, and so on. Um, how does it feel to delegate nowadays? Is it, is it, is it, can you kind of dive into that? Like, I, I really don't see, like I said, man, I don't see anyone that really outworking you, man. And, and is, yeah. it, is it a weird feeling when you kind of push it off to someone else at first and, and let them fly? Uh, I assume you guys know the answer to that. It is weird, right? It, it's it's <laughs> tough, um, especially when you have a certain quality that you like to maintain. Uh, but it comes back to, you know, that trust aspect when we talk about Bayheim and having people work for you. And I, I still struggle with it, full, you know, full transparency. Um, but I have a great staff and I've been pleasantly surprised. I'd say 98% of the time when I throw someone into the fire and they come out, you know, full order of the Phoenix, they, 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 they produce a deliverable that's better than I would have. And, you know, we've starting to get really like strategic and tactical in our hiring processes to make sure that we're not hiring another Pat Luckett or, you know, we're not just rinsing and repeating. We're finding people that fill our areas of weakness and then putting them into situations to succeed. Um, all that being said, it's still tough and we're not that big of a company, right? We have eight full-time employees. We have a pretty robust intern program. And those are the ones I really like to throw into the fire because you know they, uh, they surprise themselves and it's really fun to see the look on their face when they've handed in something or you know, finished off an event that uh, you know, not just overachieved over my expectations, but the clients as well. Um, and then they end up getting, getting hired by my clients, which is always fun to see. But, um, but, you know, it, we're, we're, we're small and we, we, we say it takes a village all the time. And, you know, one day I may be involved with some of the graphic design and marketing collateral for an event. And other days I'm running numbers for finance and working with our bookkeeper. And, um, and I need to continue to trust the people that we have and it needs to trickle down. Right. And, uh, ultimately we, that's why we have such a, uh, I think rigorous onboarding process and hiring process. And we really try and hire folks that have a demonstrated history of um, taking projects from start to, to end. Yeah, and I want to ask you about that, that process. What, what do you think the most paramount pro part of your process is in defining somebody at first? Is that you guys have a magic wand over there or yeah. it, have you found anything that's, that's working pretty good for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a million ways to, to find applicants right now, right? There's all a, a ton of different softwares and services out there. LinkedIn's been pretty good for us. I, I, up until recently, I taught at NYU in the same program that I, that I graduated from. And that was a great feed, feeder for us. I still keep in touch with a lot of the faculty there. So when they have A plus students that, you know, you get a feel for them when you're teaching them how, how well they would acclimate to the business world and you know, we, we, do, we do draw a line in the sand of academia and actual business production. I think, you know, not the best producers are, are great students and vice versa. Um, that's obviously not mutually exclusive. You can be both. But, um, you know, that's, that's a great system 
the Syracuse faculty here has been great in helping us find some candidates. But then the interview process, we actually give homework assignments, you know, like if you want the job, you're going to have to come and present for it. Um, you know, who, who takes that extra step, who, who does research on the company, who does research on our clients, who's asking the right questions. Um, we, we, one of my favorite questions, and it really gets into who is, what, who is the person that we're interviewing? What are their intangibles? We ask them what their best friend would say when asked, why are they perfect for this job? And we actually had an interview the other day, yesterday, where a woman made a, uh, a sizzle reel of all of her friends talking about why she was great for the job and presented it in the interview, but did it under as if it was like a hinge profile, right? So you kind of scroll through like, hi, this is me. I'm so-and-so. Here's what my best friends say. Click, play, had rehearsed the presentation, knew the audio would share. It was great, right? And so yeah. top of the list, right? Sign her up, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, seeing that extra drive and initiative. And I, I want to go back to like, um, like you said, delegation, uh, you have a quality standard, but it's almost padded. You, you found you're kind of tapping into what you learned and saw from a sports perspective, right? Only the best really truly play on the court. Um, but it's up to the coaching staff, the recruiting team, right. To spot potential, but then know how to develop that potential um, based off of Bayheim's approach, right? With the individual, how far can I go? How far can, how hard yeah. can I push? What yeah. buttons can I push to motivate that individual? Um, and I love how you're saying is, is I don't want another me, right? Because I think a lot of organizations, a lot of CEOs look at their high performers and they say, all right, based off of what their profile is, we want the exact cut paste of this individual. Right. Then you get a lot of the same mentality, the same mindset, not a lot of innovation because everybody has the same ideas. Um, so I think it's just a, that's a learning moment for a lot of organizations as they approach that talent management side of it is really thinking differently, right? Yeah. Um, thinking outside the box um, and and getting comfortable with spotting potential and being able to develop it, but knowing how. Yeah, um, yeah Absolutely. I want to I want to kind of go back to uh, another piece that you talked about. You talked about optimizing the talent that they had, right? And you referenced Bayheim and kind of collegiate sports, and we see it today in professional sports, given the amount of money that's in this industry. But it's something that's still kind of taken for granted, I would say, in the professional space. How do you continue to develop your team? How do you make sure that you have the right people in the right seats, as it's commonly phrased? But how do you maximize your return? How do you get the most out of your employees? If you were to say, Kevin, these are my top three and this is how I learned them. What are some of the ways that you and your team collectively are working together to get the most out of each other? Yeah, um, I mean, communication all of the time. Some of it's formal, some of it's not. Uh, we utilize Microsoft Teams ad nauseum, right? And, and we try and demonstrate workflows that if you started today or you've been here for six years, you understand where things are, how to access the resources that we've developed, what the workflows are. And we, again, ad nauseum, try and over-communicate these things to get to the point of redundancy. Redundancy in business often considered a bad term. I love it. I'm here for it, right? If everybody's at, at the point of redundancy, then we're all on the same page. And then you all understand expectations, right? And we can move forward as a team, as a unit to try and achieve what those expectations are. Um, so, you know, I, I super, I, I preach that every single day. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, each position has the, their scope, has their job responsibilities. And we want to make sure that as much of that as possible is quantitative, 
but that's hard, right? There's a lot of subjective things, especially if like outside of sales, which is a little bit more binary. Um, you know, you get into some more subjective responsibilities. Um, but we do try and make sure that they, each employee has, you know, a criteria that they're measured against and that we're meeting against it at least uh, semi-annually, right? And that's me and, and my business partner having these meetings. They're not passed off to just their superior. Um, we get input from, you know, the org chart, but ultimately, again, we're not that big of a company. And so we we all play a role for each other. Um, and then the last thing that I do or that we do organizationally is every single Tuesday morning, we have a call. It used to be uh, at 8.30 in the morning. So I would get everybody up nice and early. We'd spend 30 minutes together. We would recognize what everybody has going on and we would, you know, reward high performers in that meeting, make sure that there was a spotlight on them. We now have some people that live in California, so that's a little too early for them. But uh, <laughs> we, we maintain the Tuesday morning meeting and, um, you know, it's it's an opportunity to incentivize the good performance. I'm a huge fan of Dale Carnegie's, right? How to win friends and influence people. And, you know, you get a lot more results from, uh, from recognizing and, and uh, celebrating the wins than you do for chastising the losses. So uh, we try and employ that week in and week out. Well, no, I think it's your hospitality mindset, right? Because one of the things that I consult on is that the employee experience equals your customer experience and look at what yeah. you're doing at best day ever is focusing on the experience that individual has to lead to future business opportunities and I could tell you're a Dale Carnegie fan because that's exactly it's all about how you make somebody else feel right and that's how yeah. you establish your entire organization is this belief that there's something bigger and better and I loved how you said it. it's like this opportunity that sports teams I think they talk about it. I think from a marketing standpoint, they try to pitch on how they're this community member, but sometimes mm -hmm. those actions don't really line up um, right. because I have the same belief in businesses, right? If you're really a member of the community, then you care about your high school graduation rates. You care about some of the violence in these areas. You care about um, your community members because eventually they're going to be your employees. Um, and instead of blaming others for their inadequacies, be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Um, so I love that perspective, but I see the hospitality side of it, right? You see hospitality and then I see your performance, right? You want to reward and recognize good behavior. It's the same thing that you saw in coaching. If somebody's going the extra mile, you want to make sure that you're holding that person up and championing yeah. that work ethic. So other people raise the bar for themselves as well. Um, yeah. but yeah, dude, 100%. this has been a, a fascinating, fascinating conversation, brother. I wish we had more time with you because I think Tyler and I could go all day having a, this conversation with you. Um, my last question, I guess, to end it, um, you seem like somebody that's driven by a, an intention, right? And and it seems like we're doing some of these activities in that crooked mile journey, not knowing where we're really going. And I would say that's a lot of people. They haven't determined what that final destination is for themselves to even create that morning intention to know where to pay attention. What is, what is Patrick's daily intention as a leader, as a, uh, as a man, as a person, what is your daily intention that fuels you to get out of bed every morning? Yeah, that's, uh, it's a nuanced question. I apologize if I give you a, a long winded answer, but you know, we pushed this, this podcast because um, we had stuff going on in our personal lives and I, I was on daddy duty. I got a two-year-old daughter, right? And so priority one is family for me, uh, especially being a first-time father with a two-year-old, like 
no better job title in the world. It helps set the perspective. It helps set, you know, the intention of why we go to work and work long hours. And, you know, my, my job requires me to travel quite a bit. I won't lie. That sucks with a two-year-old, but um, you know, you push past it knowing that you're trying to put, put, put food on the table. Right. Yeah. And then kind of looking inward at the business, we talked about the pressure of employing people. I love it. You know, like I, I, the fact that we took this idea and we're able to turn it into a profitable business. And that helps other people achieve their goals, their personal goals. Um, I, I don't want to sound like there's hubris there. It's not. It's it's truly an, just an incredible thing for me that, you know, this little thing has grown into this world that it still has a long way to grow, right? And um, that's kind of the long-term intent that I'll get to. But the fact that, you know, people that I consider friends, employees, coworkers, uh, they're able to go on their vacations. We had guys get, you know, proposed to their girlfriends in Edinburgh and, you know, all of these things that, um, you know, we're part of their lives and get to witness it hand in hand with them. And uh, it's just, it's very, very cool and fascinating to me. And then the long-term, I mean, we're, we're, we're a small business, right? I don't know if we can use the term startup anymore. We're in year four and a half, um, but we're, you know, growing and continue to grow. We always have our vision on what's next. And there's a lot of strategic partnerships out there. There may be some M&A environments that we might want to be a part of. We'll see how the economy does. Um, the longer term attention is just, you know, what, what, what do we do that helps put our business on steroids? And we're constantly evaluating opportunities um, in the hospitality world, in the bespoke experience world, in the gamification world, because we developed our own software around that. Um, you know, we love that we can go to a client and not know what the meeting is really about and listen and have kind of that consultative mindset and then deliver a program that achieves against their KPIs. Again, kind of goes back to why we started the business is these things were lined up with business development initiatives. So business development, very straightforward KPIs. If we're not helping close deals, we're not, you know, the program's not, not a success. We take that same mindset into every activation we do. We think that we've exploited a niche in this world. Um, and are exciting about excited about building resources around that and continue to uh, to see where it takes us. I didn't, I loved how you put it. We are a part of their lives and watching them them grow up almost at the same time. But it requires you to have that daily intention to take the time or a time out to actually understand what their personal definition or personal goals are to help them achieve that. So, which is unlike I think a lot of other people are saying, fall in line. This is my vision. Fall in line. It better be yours too. But not taking the time to actually have them craft and define what that future goal is for them individually. And then you're supporting and aiding their way and and how to help achieve that. So it's important. The challenge and reward they need to match up, or else you you know you're, everyone's doomed for failure. You'll have unhappy employees, and you got to figure out how to push past that and make sure that you're offering the right opportunities for them to to feel rewarded. Totally, totally. Well, Pat, thank you, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to meet you and hear kind of your perspective and insights from the days back in Syracuse, but now here at uh, Best Day Ever as you continue to grow and. You're uh, almost to year five, so I don't think you're a startup anymore, but it's really exciting to see somebody, an entrepreneur um, like yourself that has had this crooked mile journey, but has ended at the same destination that you were somewhat selecting with your father when you were sitting down at that table selecting colleges. So thank you so much for uh, sharing your wisdom and expertise with us. Kevin, Tyler, it was a real pleasure. Thank you guys. You guys do great work. This is a lot of fun. Awesome. Appreciate you, Pat. Thanks so much. So long. See you guys. See y'all.